The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening, everyone. I'm glad to be with you. I think I haven't come down here for um, quite some time. Uh, maybe in January last year, I uh, led a series on Brahma Viharas, subbing for Andrea for a month or five weeks. But it's always nice to come and see what a, a vibrant community it is and hear about the hikes and the nuns and all the different uh, things happening in the Sangha here. So I do live in uh, San Francisco, and I have been practicing for about 20 years, and in the beginning of my practice, I'd done a lot of practice in monasteries, retreat centers, like fairly classical, kind of um, vipassana-style practice. But also uh, an interest of mine has been in applying the Dharma in our regular life here, you know, in the 21st century in the United States, uh, or wherever you might be. Because I feel like the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of liberation are uh, completely relevant for us. So the more that I've practiced and also studied the teachings, the more remarkable it is that kind of the mapping of the mind and the mapping of the way leading out of suffering and the way leading back into suffering uh, has rem- remained remarkably the same you know, over 2,600 years. So even though you know the external uh, things have changed and now we have... Uh, hybrid cars instead of ox carts and uh, you know instead of um, maybe blacksmiths and uh, feudal kingdoms it's uh, tech uh, consultants and uh, city state boundaries uh, still the mind is very similar right in the way it's described and you can apply this so particularly I've been interested in uh, you know, how you apply the teachings of the Dharma both internally and externally. So both the way that we pay attention when we are doing meditation and noticing what arises in our mind-body process, but then also what arises in our regular life, so to speak. So even the distinction between internal and external sometimes can seem a little um, uh, concocted, but you know, in the external world, so to speak, what is arising and how can we make everything that comes into our experience part of our path, so part of our spiritual path, part of our uh, learning path, like part of our path to awakening. So the Buddha refers to this even in the, the main sutta, which the meditation that we do is based on the Satipatthana Sutta, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and I know Gil has done a lot of talks on. Um, you know, it talks about paying attention to the body, paying attention to the mind, uh, mind states, feelings, uh, Dhammas, and there's kind of this refrain in that that's kind of like the chorus in a pop song that keeps coming back, you know, the thing that you're supposed to really pay attention to over and over again. And it's about uh, how to pay attention. And for example, when it's uh, talking about the body, uh, in this way the practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And then the practitioner abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So this internally and externally uh, is of interest to me. So in general, I try to kind of run whatever it is that's going on in my life through the Dhamma screens and see uh, how I can apply the teachings. And recently I've gone through a little um, period of dukkha that uh, I'll describe to you shortly that 
had me reflect on this in a different way. And this is the um, dukkha related to uh, what you could call um, sports team loss fan syndrome. <laughs> so uh, I know that the, the season has come up of baseball again, right? So um, people who are Giants fans are getting excited, and also the um, college basketball season just ended. Um, the uh, event to which I refer is a somewhat more obscure event for most of you, I'm sure, which is the Cricket World Cup, uh, which happened um, recently. And um, cricket is a game that's actually played in many parts of the world thanks to the uh, stretches of the British Empire. Um, so the Cricket World Cup actually involves teams from most of the continents, so Australia, New Zealand, West Indies, Africa, uh, South Asia. Um, so unlike our World Series, you know, that includes like all American teams and like one Canadian team, it really is kind of a world uh, sports thing. So my family is originally from Sri Lanka, and the Sri Lankan team uh, came up to the finals in the World Cup, um, which was the uh, second time in a row. So four years ago, the last time it came to the, the finals, and Sri Lanka was playing Australia and then lost. So this time uh, it was being played in South Asia, in India, Sri Lanka, um, Bangladesh, and the finals was Sri Lanka versus India. So it was a very big deal match. Unfortunately, the timing of the match, because it was played in those countries, was such that California time, this is between like 2 a.m. and 10 a.m., is when the game was played. And yes, that's true. Eight hours is how long the cricket match uh, takes. <laughs> so it requires a certain commitment to you know, follow a sport like this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not actually... Um, I have to admit, I'm a little bit of a fair-weather fan. So... Uh, even with the with the Giants, I have to say, like, I don't have this sort of stamina to pay attention uh, on a daily basis, like for months and months, to different sports teams. But when it comes down to like the more exciting, you know, dramatic parts, I start to tune in. And um, so, similar with the the Cricket World Cup, uh, you know, when it, when the Sri Lankan team got to like the quarterfinals, then I start to pay attention and uh, get into it like that. Right. So I know the diehard sports fans are very disdainful of those like me who get on the train late in the day and so on, you know. But it was really interesting to notice, you know, even in myself, just the pattern of what uh, went on through uh, engaging with this, like being interested in this uh, external event, um, paying attention to it, and then, uh, you know, experiencing uh, loss, right? The team that I wanted to win didn't win, um, and then going through the cycles of that. And actually, I've I've felt this even in times when the team that I wanted to win won, too. So I was rooting for the Giants in the World Series last year, and they won. And still, there was sort of a cycle of emotion that uh, played out that was really interesting to pay attention to. So I wonder how many people here are sports fans of one sort or another, or ever in your life have followed a sports team with any kind of interest, even in high school or... You know, college. Okay, good. We got some people in here. And how many people, this is a completely mysterious subject. And uh, in fact, you think it's ridiculous that people spend so much time and energy on this. Uh, in fact, if you could walk out like quietly right now, you probably would, having <laughs> heard the subject, but you're trapped in the corner, right? Yeah, yeah. So for those who have no interest, I would just say to um, try to be interested with compassion for <laughs> the... Um, Suffering and lunacy of <laughs> a good part of the population, you know. So 
So you know, actually, in the the time of the Buddha, um, I don't know that they had you know professional sports teams in the same way, but um, in fact, actually, there were sort of these spiritual teams that were around. Right. So you know, and Buddha went off on his um, spiritual quest. So he was, you know, had this sort of existential crisis, and then went off to try to understand uh, the meaning of suffering. Uh, he went off and basically he sort of put on the uniform of a mendicant. You know, he cut off his hair and took off his jewelry and then put on the uniform of the general spiritual practitioner. And in India at that time, um, you know, there was sort of a cadre of people who were like this, uh, who were doing various spiritual practices, trying to see into the nature of things. And so it was kind of understood if you're dressed like this and you have like the mendicant's bowl, you go around, you get fed, and you, know, you do your thing. But there were actually many different groups that you could uh, choose to ally yourself with. So there were many different uh, sort of teams, so to speak. Right? And they actually were kind of like teams in some ways. So there was a lot of allegiance people had to different uh, teachers and different followers. There were different bands of them. And, you know, Buddha actually tried out some different ones before he uh, went out on his own. You know, he learned the spiritual technology of this teacher and of that teacher and then went out on his own. So I remember when I was first um, learning about this at the time, uh, I studied Buddhism in um, college some, and um, hearing that you know, there were basically these different bands of spiritual practitioners going around, and they would kind of challenge each other to debate. So uh, there was a, a sign, like you could make a mound of sand and put a stick in it, and it was like, you know, I challenge you to like spiritual rumble, right? So, and then they would have to come together, and then they would have to debate you know, something. So it would be something about, like, well... Uh, you know, what happens uh, after death or what is it that causes good things to happen or bad things to happen or where does ignorance lie or, you know, um, any number of things like this in the kind of realm of uh, philosophy, spirituality, things like this. And there was also uh, discord between uh, different groups sometimes, right? So I'll share with you a few accounts of this. Um, So here's one uh, story from the suttas in which the, uh, it's describing the, sort of the spiritual group of Niganta Nataputta, who's basically Jain, the Jains. And um, upon his death, his, basically his group divided, split into two. They had taken to quarreling and brawling and were deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. You do not understand this Dhamma and discipline. I understand the Dhamma and discipline. How could you understand the Dhamma and discipline? Your way is wrong. My way is right. I am consistent. You are inconsistent. What should have been said first, you said last. What should have been said last, you said first. And so on and so forth, right? Um, so there's disputes between, even in one group, you know, and then this group sort of breaks up. And you know, in the um, Buddhist suttas, oftentimes, there are these debates between the groups. And uh, usually someone comes to debate the Buddha and before he comes to debate, he's full of confidence. He's, he's mostly a male figure comes to debate. And uh, does like a lot of like kind of spiritual trash talk in some ways, you know. Like, oh, I'm going to, you know, like an elephant thrashes hemp around. I'm going to, you know, get that sage and, you know, stuff like that. And then in the Buddhist stories, at least, the Buddha always wins in the debates, right? So I actually asked a Jain friend of mine, you know, so in the Jain stories, does the Jain person always win? Because, you know... <laughs> Um, she said that she didn't, she didn't remember that, that happening too. Right? Uh, 
so this, this happens too with sports teams in some ways, right? There's this allegiance, this identity with sports teams. And um, some of you are probably aware more recently in the news that um, uh, this manifests sometimes in very uh, painful and criminal and difficult ways. So recently someone was, uh, I think, knocked into a coma at the Dodgers uh, Giants opener in L.A., right? So this is like taking that level of uh, identity attachment to like... Uh, feverish pitch and uh, into violence. Right? But for many people who have uh, followed sports teams in some ways, while they wouldn't have said, like, oh, I would do that, that makes sense to do that, it's easy to understand in some ways, right? Like how that could happen. If you yourself have been a sports fan or if you have been amongst sports fans, right, when something like this happens. Now, those of you who are not sports fans, think about some other identity group with which you ally yourself, right, when I'm talking about this. So it could be your nationality, right? It could be, like, uh, where you come from. That's your identity group, right? Um, it could be something about uh, your class of people, right? Like, there's many different ways that we as people tend to identify in groups. And basically, the phenomenon I'm talking about is, like, how we identify in groups and how that plays out sort of in our... Uh, psychological life, right, leading to dukkha or not dukkha. So I wonder if there's anyone here who has been a sports fan who would be willing to describe a little bit uh, what it's like when you are following your sports team and when they either win or they lose in a big, big game, just for the, those people who have no idea. Just a brief description of sort of what you go through or what it's like or something like that. All right, we got one up there. Someone up. Wait, wait. Uh, for me, I know recently I went to a, um, a Sharks game, and um, I'm kind of like you. I'm, you know, I'm a, what is it? Um, but I'm I'm not I'm like kind of the fair weather type as well Uh so I'm not like a total like crazy diehard but I do enjoy sports and I do like going to games so anyway I went to a hockey game recently and um, it was a really good game and I felt I liked the elite the um, the belonging sense like the allegiance that happens when your team's winning and everyone's just in a really good mood strangers come up to you slap you five there's like this like really good feeling in the air, and that's that's a positive that right. I enjoy from going to games. So a positive, just like sense of positive, and everyone's in a good mood and happy, and I I like that. That's right. that's that's what draws me. I mean, if it was a negative atmosphere, I definitely would stay away. Right. But it's a positive for me. So so camaraderie and the camaraderie, belonging, yeah. connection. Right. Yeah. And so, how about someone who is willing to describe the despair of loss? Well, um, I'm not into sports at all, but I'm Brazilian. And my, my family, uh, my, I have seen, I have grown up, seen my father and my brother um, be totally, my father who I, hadn't, like, who I hadn't seen crying, crying like a baby, 
because it won or because it lost. Uh-huh. Was it a soccer team, perhaps? With the, uh, yes, yes, it was okay. the world. It was always the World Cup. You know that this is right. my biggest memories because it's the only thing I'm interested in. Like the last cup of games, if Brazil keeps going, and <laughs> I cry as well. But uh, I know the feeling because you hear the whole city screaming. This is something about sports that I think is incredible because you hear, I mean, if it's a national or like a city thing, you hear a whole city screaming at the same time. I think this is incredible. I don't know what else can do that. Mm-hmm. But um, I have seen like big men who don't cry, like crying like babies because their team have lost or like really like on the floor, like, ah. Right, <laughs> right. So some some of those people may be here amongst us, but not willing to, you know, <laughs> not wanting to share that here in the uh, Dharma group, which is okay. Um, I have an article here from the Telegraph, which is a British uh, newspaper, and about also soccer teams, football there. Uh, and the headline is, Do you suffer from Arsenal lost at home syndrome? So Arsenal is a big football team in London. It's basically describing this um, this syndrome. So... You know, the syndrome can affect sports supporters of any losing team. Uh, As the losers, this is about a particular game. They lost to Manchester United at home, so this was very difficult for them. Um, Telltale signs include depression, frenzied sobbing, headbutting the wall, throwing heavy objects through the window, possibly the television set, Um, but potentially other things too. So in 2003, a study revealed that after a home defeat, male fatalities from heart attacks and strokes increased by 30%. Having your football team lose is an extreme stressor, explains Dr. Daniel Freeman, a clinical psychologist. Uh, Hence, for example, the 25% increase in hospital admissions for heart attacks uh, recorded following England's loss to Argentina in a World Cup penalty shootout uh, in 1998. And then uh, they describe one particular guy. So he's Andy Lucy, who has been a fanatical Arsenal supporter for 20 years. He has it luckier than those These days when his side loses, he merely goes into an unresponsive catatonic state for two days. (laughs) I retreat into my own world if they lose in a major sulk. I can't explain how much it hurts. It's just utter, utter numbness and desolation. You mustn't attempt to communicate with me or even look at me when this happens. I even unplug the phone to guarantee I'm incommunicado. And then his live-in girlfriend Claire has learned to adopt certain coping strategies. On match days, I become really uptight. It's too stressful to sit with Andy if Arsenal are on TV. So I go upstairs, and from there, I listen to him screaming at the TV set. I pray, please, God, let them win. (laughs) If he's away watching a match, I have to find out the score to gauge how to react when he comes home. If Arsenal is lost, he's really, really sad. You see it in his tense body language as soon as he opens the door. When this happens, the rules are don't make eye contact, don't speak to him unless spoken, and don't even try to calm him. Just give him space. So this may be you know, an extreme uh, version of that. Like I recognized small amounts of this myself after the loss of this uh, World Cup, but not um, as extreme. But you know, I was surprised to see this in myself, particularly being kind of a fair-weather uh, sports fan. Like I didn't care two weeks before at all. And then I started to pay attention and kind of like got on this uh, train with it. So the first thing is I think it's really interesting as human beings to notice that there are these different kind of like psychological uh, forces that we uh, go through, right? And a lot of the times we can have this sense of being like kind of these rational beings and like I understand what's happening and 
okay, I'm mad because of this, and I'm happy because of this, and it seemed kind of predictable. And then there's some things that happen in your life that really throw you into a spin, and they may or may not be things that like, make sense. So some of these are falling in love, right? So if anyone has had that experience of you know, falling in love, whatever you call that, then you go through some process that's really a big emotional roller coaster that uh, doesn't make sense, is not related, relatable in some like, uh, normal cognitive way, right? Uh, and then the other side of that one, so breakups, right? Also, uh, very difficult kind of psychological uh, stages that we go through. And again, they're like not so, they're not, it's more clear in those states actually that we're not in control, right? Uh, that these different feelings are coming up for us. And uh, particularly, I'd say the, the breakup part is a lot of what drives people to um, Dharma practice too. So there may be many of us here who have come uh, for that reason, right? For consolation from that. Um, so I think one of the helpful lessons is, is in noticing when one of these processes goes through, just like to be with it in some way. So uh, you take interest in this, like take interest in whatever it is that's the psychological process going on in your life, but not necessarily with a like lens towards, I'm going to try and control it, I'm going to try and fix it, I'm going to try and make it this, but just to actually be with whatever those feelings and emotions are in some way, right? Now, it's, it's also is helpful to reflect and to learn from things. So there's some obvious, uh, obvious ones from the you know, loss of, from sports loss that uh, you, know, you don't have to be like a very advanced Buddhist practitioner to get, right? So attachment to views, <laughs> attachment to wanting something to be some way uh, is a cause of suffering, right? So in a world in which we can't control everything, uh, in fact, we can control very little, when you want something to turn out one way, and you'll be very happy if it does, and very sad if it doesn't, that's a recipe for uh, dukkha, right? As simple as that. So the sports team is kind of one manifestation of that, but actually this plays out in smaller ways in all different ways in our life, right? So I'll be really happy if I get this job, right? But if I don't get the job, I'll be really sad. Um, I'll be really happy if my kid gets into this school, but if they don't, I'll be really sad. Uh, even as small as like, I'll be really happy if this light stays green long enough for me to go through, you know, on a sort of small level, but then, you know, it's, I'm going to be ups, upset and tense if it doesn't, right? So there's ways in which the mind is playing this out in small and large ways all the time. And it's helpful to pay attention, like to notice that. The sooner that you can notice that uh, pattern of the mind starting to attach to something, you know, start to notice like what it feels like as that starts to come on, Right? as that leaning starts to happen, right? as that t- tension starts to happen, um, the sooner you can see that, uh, the better, and the easier it is for you. Right? And something like this uh, sports team thing, there's something else at play, I think, that is more like kind of a um, psychological, group psychological process. Right? So there's something around um, uh, a sort of tribal loyalty to a group, because people don't get upset when individual athletes win or lose. Right? So usually, you know, the whole city doesn't celebrate if like a golf person wins or a tennis person wins or something. Right? It's more this sense of like being part of a group and allegiance. Right? Uh, so I think there's something else that takes over then that's kind of a more uh, basic kind of sense of belonging, connection thing uh, that adds to this kind of like crazy euphoria thing that happens. Right? 
there also seems to be this kind of manifestation of uh, being on this ride of excitement, right? Of like focus of something. And it goes up and then it goes down. And the thing is, it actually goes up and goes down whether you win or lose. So how many people here were Giants fans during the World Series and were actually following pretty strongly? Yeah. So did you notice that too? So even after the Giants won the World Series, for people who are actually really following, there's this sense of loss because that thread of your life is gone now, right? Or there's some emptiness, sort of, sort of like, oh, this thing is, is gone, right? Uh, so even if your team wins, it's sort of like, oh, there's something that happens there. And, and you know, change is part of life also. So, you know, that that happens doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't pay attention to uh, the giants or care about them. But it's just interesting to notice, like, oh, in that process, in the process of that attachment to that, like, win or lose, there's a, a sense of emptiness that comes through. So then here's the question is, can you actually uh, do this in some balanced way, right? So can you actually be a sports fan in a balanced way? Or is it just all insanity, you know, if you just give it up, right? Uh, like, is there a way to actually uh, care about something and pay attention to it, but also not be tossed around in the same way? So even those of you who don't actually want to know the answer to this question, <laughs> you can extrapolate that to whatever. Like, is there a way to care about whether your kid gets into college or not, you know, and not have it? knock you around? Is there a way to care about whether or not you get this job, or whether or not this person wants to go out with you, or whether or not uh, you get this color uh, car, or whatever, right? There's any number of different things that happen in our life. It's like, well, in order to be able to be balanced, do we have to not care? You know, do we have to like recede back? Uh, like, is that the way to, to uh, live a balanced and peaceful life? So I'd say the answer is no, right? That it is actually possible to be connected, to care about something, uh, but also not to get uh, thrown around by it, right? Or if you're getting thrown around by it, to actually enjoy the ride, <laughs> to not worry about that so much, right? So I think both of those things are possible. So the, the being on the ride and seeing yourself on the ride uh, and being able to be with that is oftentimes the best that we can do, right? So once you're in some process, whether that's... Uh, falling in love or uh, wanting something to happen or following a sports teams. Uh, I think it's just being able to see what the emotions are that are happening, see the thoughts that are happening, and trying to be with that, basically trying to practice with that. So bring the practice off of just the sitting position into whatever it is that's happening in your life. Like make that part of your practice. So equanimity is a big piece uh, that comes in here too. So the teachings around equanimity are that it is possible to develop this quality of mind that's balanced in the face of changing circumstance. And the uh, near enemy of equanimity, you know, the thing that's close to that but not actually that, is indifference. So it's helpful to notice that because it's not indifference. So it, it's indif- indifference is not being connected to what's happening. So it looks like you're very cool. It looks like you're not uh, being... Uh, affected by things, but it's because you've receded back and you're actually not uh, paying attention anymore in the same way. So I'd say there is some possibility of uh, connection with equanimity. So it's possible to be able to follow things and actually really care, really be connected, but not be thrown around as much by them. So how is this possible? So it's good to notice the times in which you can do this. So uh, I'll say when, as a sports fan, some of the times I notice myself doing this and being able to watch sports and just enjoy the glory of the sport itself, right? So it's just like athleticism. There's a beauty in the game and you can appreciate 
whoever does a good play, whether it's your team, the other team. Right? But you still can actually love for your team to win. Like, you know, but know that it's a game. And I think that's the key there. It's like, sort of like, teach me to care and not to care. You know, it's that famous quote. Right? So being able to connect, being able to care about something, but also to know that you know, it's actually just a game. Uh, in this case, literally, it is a game. Like, literally, these are people like hitting balls with sticks and you know things like that, right? Um, but in another sense, much of what we do in our lives is actually uh, sort of a game. You know, it's part of the changing circumstances. Uh, it's part of the play of our life. Right? So, if you think about all the things that worried you a lot, maybe thirty years ago, you know, the things that really stressed you out, that you were like, oh, this has got to happen, or you know, my life is going to be terrible, or I really need this to, to work out, or you know, for those of you who are uh, past high school, like think about what you were like in high school and what really concerned you then, you know. Um, and you know, it's not to like laugh at the issues of like young people, but like when you think back, it's like oh, I didn't really need to get that stressed out about that, right? Like it was possible for different things to play out, and uh, and things were okay, right? Or things would be okay. You can also bring the sense of reflection into, um, you know, even like something like the world of sports. So, uh, for example, I think, you know, there's, there's a, a metaphor that's, that the Buddha used to talk about um, understanding, like, anatta, like the lack of uh, permanent, solid self of something, which was like the chariot. Right? So some of you have probably heard this before. So um, this is in some dialogues, like the questions of King Belinda. It's like, well, what is this chariot, right? So... Um, the chariot is actually like you take it apart and it's like, well, here's the axle and here's the wheels and here's the reins and here's the this and here's the that, right? So it's all these different parts. So when you put them together, you could call it conceptually a chariot. But in actuality, it's not one thing. It's made of all these different things, right? Or you could do this with a car, right? So it's so true with sports teams. I mean, especially nowadays in the world of corporate sports, you know, like what is the San Francisco Giants? Like it's like a concept, you know? Like, it's not like all these people were born and raised in San Francisco, you know? Like, somebody paid them to put this color shirt on and, you know, whack the ball in this stadium as opposed to that stadium, right? <laughs> and then, you know, even some of the players who were, like, great players for the World Series have already uh, gone on somewhere else, right? Uh, so, it's the, like, you can see the impermanence in that. You know, the, the idea of San Francisco Giants is just a concept, uh, it doesn't mean that you don't have to care about it. You know, it, it may not make it any more or less uh, compelling. Uh, but it's just to see, like, oh yeah, I can care about this thing, but there's no there there in some ways. You know, it's part of this con- this flow of process, right? like all these different people who are uh, involved in this thing, and it's just like the chariot in some ways. Like, oh, this is the catcher piece. This is the soft shortstop piece. This is this. Right? So in that way, you can help to sort of like distance a little bit from that. I think in the, the terms of the national team losses, it's a little bit harder, right? So that was particularly for me in this, uh, you know, arena with the World Cup. Uh, there definitely is a sense of like uh, sort of national pride, you know, coming through, and particularly coming from a country like um, Sri Lanka that you know doesn't win a lot of Olympic medals or you know doesn't have like a lot of resources. It's like, oh, that would be so great if we can, you know. And then also, I feel like there was a, a way in which, um, for me as someone who is a uh, second-generation person, there's a way in which I was able to be connected to the country of origin and then to my cousins who lived in all these different countries. And sort of through the magic of uh, the internet, uh, we were able to communicate about the game. You know, my cousins in Australia and, uh, 
in Sri Lanka and in England and the U.S. So that was kind of a nice thing uh, to see too. Right? But then I noticed, like, and, and my cousins also noticed, they're like, I don't think you like cricket. Like, do you watch cricket, really? I thought you were American. Like, what are you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, look at that. That's interesting too. Right? So uh, just some reflections for you on paying attention, paying attention to chaotic, unknown psychological processes in your life. <laughs> Having uh, compassion and openness and interest to learn from everything that comes through. Uh, Looking at everything through the lens of Dhamma. So trying to reflect on everything through the lens of uh, looking at impermanence, uh, looking at the non-solidity of things, and seeing suffering in the way that we relate to whatever it is that's happening. And the possibility also of caring about things uh, without having to disconnect. So being able to uh, care about your sports team or whatever it is uh, and still stay stay balanced. So I offer those um, reflections for you this evening. And we have a little time for people's um, comments or questions too, if you have any. Okay. Um, well, I always felt that sports were uh, an excellent metaphor for life. Uh, in America, uh, we have some really wonderful sports. Football. For the young uh, 16, 15-year-olds, you know, who get to play high school football when I was a young man. This was very important. So important. I'm now 69. This Friday, I'm going to go back to my high school for a reunion, but I've organized my sports team, the football team. <laughs> now, this, it, I wish I had time to tell you this story, but uh, these are teams, you know, formed from very small uh, uh, towns in the San Joaquin Valley, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes, you know, from Texas to Florida, you know, it's the same. And, and you have this intensity as a young man to go out and be with your team and the sense of camaraderie and all that comes about. And then this, you know, you, 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 in this case, we won all our games except the last one, which we lost because of, you know, well, we thought it was bad, uh, you know, called by the referees. But we all, uh, now I, I call up my coach this last year. He's now 79 years old. And we talk about that game. Mm-hmm. But I've always remembered it as this, is that I was not going to win everything in my life. Mm-hmm. That, that's part of it. And, it's, and, it, and, it, and you're right on, you know, it's that separation you want to have between, and I use it in the business world now, you know, I do not expect to win every time. Or I, you know, my, the loss is something you don't want to be. You know, you, you can have that loss and still recognize that it's, you know, uh, that, that you can keep a separation between it and yourself. Uh, it just, you don't have to identify with it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that, yeah. Yeah, so lots of, lots of good things from playing sports, too. Lessons about 
how to be with people and connect with people and work with people and winning, losing, and team sports in particular. It also is interesting to note, like, our, you know, the attachment to views is a big part of it, right? So attachment to our team, my team's better than your team. And then even attachment to our sport, which I heard a little in your thing, like football, that's a great sport, you know. And um, so, you know, my cousins think cricket is a great sport, right? And then a lot of people in America think cricket is a ridiculous sport. Like, it lasts for eight hours, and, you know, just some, there's a tea break. Like, what's that, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, my, my cousins are really, you know, no, this is the best sport. Are you kidding? It's so obvious. It's, you know, could talk for hours. They would sit and debate you about football versus cricket for hours, you know. So. All right, any other questions, comments? Well, I'm not at all a sports fan, but um, I do experience on a daily basis what you're talking about. And when I reflect on it, it is, um, for me, it's about um, attachment to identity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what threatens my identity, what threatens my sense of safety, mm-hmm. of happiness. And... Um, it's very tough, though. I mean, there are certain... We all have certain things that really get us. You know, we're, we're on, that, we're on that, that path, and we're spiraling, and we're just miserable. <laughs> and it's so hard to just be with that and not push it away. And... Um, it's pretty amazing how many times you can go through the same thing. <laughs> it really is. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's good. Like you're onto something with the, uh, you know, the attachment to identity thing. And in, in this practice, you could also look at suffering. Moments of suffering are kind of your wake-up call, right? So the dukkha of that feeling like identity is being threatened is like, oh yeah, that's where I'm attached. That's where I'm really clinging to something, some view about myself that's being challenged. And, you know, the interesting thing with the sports team thing is, like, it's sort of like you extend your sense of identity out to this group, sort of this shamanic kind of people who are doing something in the stadium, and then, you know, that affects your sense of identity, and then it recedes back. For those who are Fairweather fans, it recedes back, too, you know, in that way, so. Yeah, and then there are also so many experiences that reinforce our sense of identity, and that are very positive, and so it's almost like the sports team winning. Um, and so, you know, I'm constantly looking at that those winning moments, the, minute, the, the moments that are so gratifying as, oh, this is the source of my suffering. This is not good. This is the source of my suffering. This is what draws me into that. And I think when you look at those winning moments, too, you know, like I was describing, where even, even when you win, your team wins, like there's sometimes this sense of deflation after that. So even when you win as an ego entity in some ways, if you look more carefully, like you can see the sense of emptiness in that too. You know, there's like a sense of hollowness in that victory, and like there had to be all this energy, uh, like put forth in order to reinforce that, to to create that, right? Uh, so I think it's a really interesting place to look and to pay attention to. Yeah, thank you. Well, I <laughs> I'm a subscriber of the San Francisco Chronicle and the New York Times. And every morning I get the newspaper, and uh, the New York Times, such a uh, 
a news, it's such a serious newspaper that doesn't have comics, that doesn't have, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have horoscopes, but it has a sports page. It has a sports <laughs> section with lots of statistics that I never understood. What would anyone care? <laughs> they have lots of people employed predicting what this is going, how this is going to happen and how this other thing is going to happen. What do you suggest? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's just, I'm just trying to be funny. Thank you. Yeah, so you know, actually, another topic that uh, interests me that I had given a Dharma talk on recently was about the Dharma of listening to the news or watching the news. So <laughs> I think you can reflect on that. Um, I mean, the other side of it is that sports is business these days, right? So, you know, I think that's why it's in the New York Times, too, is that it's, it's business and it's a sign of our society, too, at this point. That, that. Um, so it's different than, um, in that way, it's different than, like, you know, these spiritual groups I was talking about um, they were not business so much in a financial sense, um, although there were allegiances with different uh, influential groups as well. Right? Um, so, yeah, it's good to notice. So maybe time for one more, and then we'll wrap it up. You mentioned something about, um, let's see, how did you put it? We can withdraw. You know, there's a, there's a way of handling situations wisely, but oftentimes, if there's a situation, a person, or something, there's that withdrawal. And um, rather than staying there and being with it, and I think a lot of times um, it's easier, it's, it's just a whole lot easier just to shut the door and walk away rather than, rather than being in the situation and uh, handling it wisely. I think that's the um, that's often the best response of the unenlightened mind, you know. So we kind of go between instead of being able to be steady with whatever is happening, you know, we sometimes don't see that this kind of attachment will lead to suffering. So we get totally sucked in, and then we get kind of tossed around. But on the other side, sometimes we get a whiff of that, and so then we back up, you know, we back up, we shut down, right? And this is true in relationship to the news also referring to this. You know, like you, you see or hear something in the news about, say, like a disaster happening, like what's happening in Japan. And you might find yourself going to both extremes of that, like either getting completely sucked in, reading a lot, reading a lot getting somewhat obsessed by it, being, feeling overwhelmed by the suffering, right? Uh, and then at other times being like, I can't hear about it, I can't listen to it, I can't deal with it, like not going to watch this, not going to um, read about it at all. So it's good to notice when we're in those two different modes and feel what it feels like in that, right? And at different times, different of those could be happening for us. So know what it feels like to be closed. Know also what it feels like to be open, you know? Like when you're open, know what it's like when it starts to be too much, right? Um, notice also this sense of compulsion, you know, that sense of craving manifests as compulsion, uh, with uh, with anything, but with news, with sports teams too. Like a lot of it is like this compulsion wave about doing something, right? Uh, getting information or connecting with this thing. So knowing what it feels like, the difference between compulsion and connection too. You know, like when that obsessive mind steps in, like when that leaning for it. You know. So in general, I think this is one of the the helpful aspects of the teaching. Is like it's totally possible to enjoy anything. You know. Like, it's, it's possible to be connected to things and to enjoy things in life and to 
know what things are, right? It's possible to engage in life. Uh, like our practice ideally helps us to engage in life, but also to know the times that we're not, right? To know the times that we're not and to have some compassion for ourselves in that closing down, right? Because there is somewhat of an organic kind of opening and closing that happens uh, as we go through life. But as we start to pay attention more, we can see like, well, what are the things that are making it easier for me to be open? What are the things that are closing down, right? And as we practice more and develop more stability of mind, then we can stay connected with more wider range of things uh, and actually be able to be present with both the joys and the sorrows. So on that note, I think we should close tonight. So maybe we'll sit for a moment together and we can share the blessings, merit from our practice. Appreciating the opportunity to practice Dhamma, reflect on the teachings of liberation. Appreciating our Sangha here, supporting us in our learning and liberation. And appreciating yourself for coming here tonight to develop your heart and mind. We share the blessings from our practice with everyone here, and with all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. So thank you for your attention. Hope to see you again sometime.